Alas, said the mouse, the world gets smaller every day. At first it was so wide that I ran along and was happy to see walls appear to my right and left. But these high walls converged so quickly that I am already in the last room. And there, in the corner, is the trap into which I must run. There is the void that I must embrace. this void quite calming actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 88 of Embrace the Void, where we look at the lighter side of sadness. I'm your host, Aaron. And with me, as always, is the guy pulling the strings, GW. How you doing, G-Dubs? Is it just going to be like we're going through each uh, character in Inside Out? <laughs> yeah, right? We just start layering them on top of each other. Sadness is my favorite. Oh, sad. I mean, I always get sad when I think about that movie. Fuck. It's so Fucking good, Fucking Pixar. Fuck you, Pixar. I like Fuck to you. slow down and obsess over the weight of life's problems. That's oh my, my favorite quote. Yeah, the, de- the death of Bing Bong is the darkest Ugh. moment in all of tel- in all of moviedom. Okay, I don't know who it was, but I just saw this the other day. Someone did the like new uh, Avengers poster thing, but with Bing mm-hmm. Bong. Yeah, and I was like, no, too far, too yeah. far. Yeah, no, it's you know. Like, I watched the Toy Story 4 trailer, and I cried at the trailer because fuck you, Pixar. And, like, it, it just reminds me of Bing Bong all over again. I fucking yeah. hate these. I hate these people so much, and I'm gonna give them my money because apparently I'm in an abusive relationship with Pixar. Yeah. So speaking of, we're gonna be uh, we got a great guest today to talk about um, fun childhood things and their darker sides. So um, this will get us uh, hopefully along the way towards uh, catching up for the episodes we missed, and then we'll get back on track with things here shortly. So I guess let's hop on over. Let's go into the void. Our guest this week is Cameron Garrity, a freelance graphic designer and story artist and co-host of the Puppeteers podcast and one of my very good friends of the Bucks Rock diaspora. Cameron, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. It is good to be here. I've been I'm watching so glad from to afar finally have a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cameron and I met working at Bucks Rock doing wonderful art uh, in the woods and uh, have since then unfortunately not been able to do any art together recently, but we long aspire, I think, to uh, engage in some voidy collaboration again at some point. Absolutely. but but in the meantime, we can at least talk about the joys of voidy art a little bit. So do you want to maybe give folks a little bit of a background of your origin story for us? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am kind of one of those puppeteers who's always kind of only wanted to do that. 
uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm-hmm. as long as I can remember the Muppets. That's a large breed, it seems like, right? Yeah, you know, in, in puppetry, I've kind of come to find that it's either people who have always wanted to do it um, because, you know, they were just raised on it, or it's some kind of artist or theater maker who have sort of stumbled across it, either, you know, in high school, a lot of people find it in college, or even when they're, they have an established theater career, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, they're working on something like Little Shop, or a lot of like sort of independent theaters that do, you know, something with artists and the the puppetry, um, like from a staging standpoint. And Mm -hmm. they just, they just get bit by that bug. Uh, but I'm, I'm firmly in the type that, uh, <laughs> I just always had Sesame street on. And, um, I, 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 I can't say for certain, but I'm, I, I remember vaguely that the, uh, the TV schedule when I was growing up was that you could watch, um, uh, it was a, a, an episode of the Muppet show then the Muppet Babies, then the Muppet Show again, mm-hmm. all on Nickelodeon. And then you could mm-hmm. switch to PBS and there would be Sesame Street on for an hour. So it was like, you know, two and a half mm-hmm. hours worth of just that. Um, but then I also, I've and I've told the story a couple times and maybe even to you, but um, I ended up, uh, my parents got me a VHS tape for Christmas one year where um, it was like the... Uh, it was called the world of Jim Henson. And what I think they maybe thought was a, uh, a compilation of just like the, the fraggles and the Muppet show. It was actually a, a PBS great performances documentary that was published mm-hmm. right after Henson died. Uh, and it, there were people like Maurice Sendak and Francis Ford Coppola talking about like his legacy on the film and television industry. Uh, mm-hmm. And all the same scenes that I was watching when the shows and movies were on, TV, this documentary was showing them and then pulling back the camera. Um, and I was seeing how it all worked. And I think the the same thing that makes kids fall in love with, you know, the Mythbusters or any of those how things work shows, um, I just, I was always gravitated uh, to, to that. And I'm sure there's a bit of nature uh, along with that nurture, but um, that's kind of, like I said, it's, it's kind of always been there. Mm-hmm. So it was the the crafty part of it that you feel like I'm I'm curious what sort of sucked you into that world. What what of that world felt sort of most attractive to you from so early on? Uh I I really think it was all of it. I remember mm-hmm. you know the the characters were so, you know, rich and and friendly and for as much as I like the Muppet show stuff, it was really Sesame Street that had me mm. had me hooked. Um, and you know, they're, uh, growing up, like all my toys were Sesame street, either like action figure things. There were a lot of puppets, uh, which I think probably influenced that. Um, I must've had, you know, 10 or 11 between either, uh, Sesame street hand puppets or just, you know, your normal kind of folk manis or any of those like toy story type things. Um, so the, I just always had puppet toys around. So even when I would turn off the TV, my my active playtime was either Legos or or the dollies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's it's funny. I was thinking about it when I was kind of because I was you know what are we going to talk about? And uh, mm-hmm. uh, the one thing, and this is 
you know, th- th- obviously any of this kind of stuff is really dorky. Uh, but the the dorky amongst the dorky was that um, <laughs> when when Sesame Street Live would come into town, uh, you know, mm-hmm. once a year or whatever, uh, th- the whole family would go. I was obviously the most into it um, because, I mean, it was like having the Rockettes and Broadway and the Rolling Stones come into town um, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> all at once. But mm-hmm. al- also, I just remember... And this is so Big Bird's my guy. Like of any any kind of. Uh, I was curious if you had favorites. Oh yeah, big time. The big Big Bird has always been like not just even like Muppet characters, but just like fictional characters. Like you really you strike me as a Big Bird. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, that, like, no, that, for that sure. Totally fits. And also, yeah. and so deviating for a second, I had uh, auditory processing issues growing up, so I was totally uh-huh. that kid who needed stuff repeated back to me six or seven times before it stuck, which is totally mm-hmm. like this. It, that's like written verbatim in the style guide uh, for, for writing for the bird. Um, so th- we, we definitely had that connection happening. But when, when he, when they would come to uh, our local theater, I just remember Big Bird seeming so much more yellow on stage. And there was just something so gorgeous about that. And I, I, would tell that to people all all growing up and you know parents and, and grandparents and stuff who were very supportive but i would say like big bird's so yellow in person and they're just yeah shut up cam <laughs> but i end up fine and and they they didn't say that but it, it was kind of you know like yeah 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 whatever uh and i found out later on that when i would have been growing up uh the the way that rgb got broadcast that mm-hmm. big birds yellow actually was muddied on a, a standard television um so That's he was not amazing. as yellow growing up for me as like kids watching now so that really mm-hmm. was my experience of like seeing him like most yellow in person because that's what he sh- i should have been seeing on screen um so again that that's super dorky but uh that no was- that's super great it reminds me of like um it's your version of like one time I went and saw um, Michelangelo's David and I got to see it in, in real life. And like, you, it's a thing where you've seen a million pictures of it yeah. and yet still seeing it in the real has a different effect. And it's bigger in a way that like none of the pictures properly captured and stuff. And it's like, for you, it was that yellowness that was just never captured in that other format. I think that's really fascinating. Totally. And actually a couple of years ago, I think it was... Was it fourteen? Maybe I uh, I visited the Henson shop because I was a do- I mm-hmm. was doing a one day audition with them for a, weirdly enough for a project that Disney was doing. But the the audition was at the Henson workshop, and uh, they were refurbishing a Big Bird in the shop. And I just remember being like, "That's the yellowest yellow that I've." Ever I mean, because even that was even better than that, you know, because in, in that case, I was like five feet away from it. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just, oh, God, it, it's such a gorgeous design. Um, Hypnotically yellow. Yeah, seriously. Uh, and you, you stick a necktie on him and he's just all the more. Mm-hmm. Anyway. There's um there's a great uh, cosmic horror story about the character, the king in yellow, who's this, um you know, godlike creature that. Uh, is all yellow and when people meet them they go insane 
And I think it'd be very funny to do a comedic version of the King in Yellow involving <laughs> Big Bird. That's great. Um, you know what? There's actually, okay, so one of the Sesame Street live shows that I saw growing up, and I only remember mm-hmm. any of this because I still have the program, uh, but mm-hmm. it was called Sleeping Birdie. Uh, and mm-hmm. so it was totally ripped off of of Sleeping Beauty, where, actually, it was more Snow White, I guess, because it... Um, it had uh, this queen of yellow from the planet Cran, who in the mm-hmm. opening scene asks if she's, uh, she has a magic mirror, if she's the yellowest of them all. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're like, actually, no, there's this bird on Sesame Street. So she, <laughs> she flies a spaceship to, to New York City um, to turn Big Bird spotted purple uh, so that she <laughs> could continue to be the yellowest person of them all. Um, so it, it for again, as much as that's Snow White, it kind of sounds maybe like this story a little bit, or the, at least tendencies yeah. from it. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and like you know, even back when we and I worked together, like there's we've we've shared I think a love of like the darker side of puppetry, and I think this is something that's that I'm really interested in. Maybe you can shed a little light on it for me, like. You know, you you mentioned earlier that you liked the depth of these worlds, and when I was yeah. listening to you talking to the guy who voices Elmo, um, that he was talking about sort of how he experiences Elmo as a particularly rich character in terms of his emotional range, which is interesting because a lot of folks think of Elmo as like the one noted happy character a lot of the time. Um, but I just I, I'm so interested in the relationship between puppetry and all this kind of emotion, like like the really rich sort of hard emotions, because I think something that we all ended up loving about Sesame Street was that it talked about hard stuff and it it like yeah. tried to address these more um, deep things. But like, how do you experience the the relationship between like the the shadow and the puppet, as it were? Sure. Well, I mean, so again, with with Sesame Street, um, and and again with Ryan, he he talked about this, but so often it's it's the light and the darkness, um, mm. and actually there's a there's a wonderful uh, German puppeteer whose name I am totally blanking on, and one of my mentors is going to kill me, um, Joseph Sculpa. There we go, um, and he. Uh, was one of these puppeteers during Nazi concentration who um, mm-hmm. he he had these daisy theaters, they'd call them, and they were puppet shows underground that they would ha- hold in people's basements completely. You know, if anyone had found them out, they would have been, you know, murdered right on the spot. Um but they it was it, they were telling these stories uh and and speaking out against the man uh because you know Hitler was trying to take over Europe and there was there were people who wanted to resist that and the reason that they were called daisy theaters was because daisies grow in the dark and so there mm. were these little you know bright pieces of of puppetry and keeping people as sane as they could, um, and again, and being that light uh, in the darkness, and and allowing people to still grow, and and feel like they had some sense of life in them, um, and that that sort of I, I think for a lot of people a north star in terms of what puppetry can do and what puppetry can be, um, and. I, I, you know, I, I'm going to keep pointing to Sesame Street because, you know, they they created a character who has HIV AIDS because in in South Africa, that's 
that's their reality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they've they've created you know in in each country that they do that show, they talk with um, with politicians and leaders and educators about what can that show do for that country. It's not just exporting Burton, Ernie, and Grover and saying good luck with it. Um, they have mm-hmm. they have discussions about you know oh okay you know kids go through garbage and it might be a landmine let's let's do something to you know teach kids about how to read signs and where to go and not go so that they you know can can live to you know grow up and and contribute to society um, and it's just it's so heartwarming to see what happens there. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, another beautiful part of all of this stuff is that it's always ends up being so educational, but there's a little bit of a dark side to it where it's like, we need this educational content because these people, you know, like people are not being provided functional education in a lot of situations. And so, like, this may be the most useful way to get them information a lot of the time. Um, and I like. I'm, I'm curious if this if this is the meaning behind, or if there's something else related to this. That's the meaning behind the name of your show. Or you just really love puns. Like for folks who may not have caught it, <laughs> the name of your podcast is Puppet Tears. Yes. Right. Emphasis on sad crying puppets. <laughs> so it seems so, like even y'all are a little bit in the in the dark spirit of things. Yeah. So that name came about when so Adam and I, who are are very close friends, and we've been working together for I think eight years now or so. So we've, we've known each other for a while. Um, and, but we, we were at each other's throats trying to figure <laughs> out a name for the show. Um, and partly what made it difficult was that we didn't quite have, um, we didn't quite have a thesis for what the show was originally. Uh, Cause the idea mm-hmm. started as like, Oh, let's just do some kind of content. We didn't even know that it was going to be a, a podcast necessarily and it evolved mm-hmm. over a couple months and um and finally we 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 met in person and said like okay what is this going to be what are we going to call it and when we finally landed on having different puppeteers as guests come on um i said well it's kind of a puppeteers podcast and and that was so backing up from there because that that was the moment that the light bulb went off for both of us but where that mm-hmm. comes from is that our our very first guest Jim Krupa um is a, f- a fantastic puppeteer and he's sort of made a, a name for himself as a puppet builder uh specifically the guy who does like all the mechs for Muppets and Sesame Street so like the thing that makes uh you know eat like uh, Rizzo's mouth move like the really small, intricate puppets. That's are, short for like mechanicals. Uh, yeah, the, the the mechanics inside a puppet, or or mm-hmm. making okay. eye blinks, or different like complicated things that you you kind of need like to a, a, a string and a spring to operate, as opposed to you know your hand. Uh, lots of little insects and bugs and all this stuff. But he worked for years um, in like advertising. He he uh, helped design the original Snuggle Bear. Um, is that hmm. the name? Yeah, for the the fabric softener. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. so he when he teaches uh, classes at the National Puppetry Conference at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, he always says that he's going to write a book uh, about the dark side of puppetry called Puppet Tears. Uh, but the caveat to that is he says he he needs to wait for everybody that he's going to write about to die so they don't sue him. 
<laughs> um, so Adam and I kind of, you know, knew about that and we had that in the back of our heads. So when I finally said, you know, this kind of sounds like a puppeteers podcast, he was like, oh my gosh, yeah. And we, we need to have Jim Krupa come on and, you know, we need to get his permission first, but he'll be our first guest and we'll talk to people about all the things that they love about puppetry, uh, but mm-hmm. also some of the things that, you know, it's, it's, it's in an, an industry and it's, it's hard work. Um, and you know, it's all adults and, you know, creating these, you know, every, every shot with a puppet is a special effect. So th- things are going to mm-hmm. go wrong. And, um, and so th- th- these are these puppeteer moments that, uh, again, we're, we're so grateful to him for that. He allowed us to, to have, to, to use the show name uh, mm-hmm. because we, I don't know that we would have had it if, if we, cause we were so set in that moment on, on that name. I don't know that it would have worked with any, if we called it anything else. It's a really exceptional name. Like I totally, <laughs> I, like I, I, I saw it and I, I enjoyed it for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're, yeah. and, and uh, so Jim always said that the cover of the book would be, um, a picture of Howdy Doody with a single teardrop running down his <laughs> cheek. <laughs> um, so amazing. we kind of took that uh, to heart and said, okay, well, we know we're going to be talking to a lot of Muppet people. Uh, you know, we're mm-hmm. going to have other folks on, but it's, it's going to be kind of primarily that. And that's where a lot of our audience is too. So we, we said, let's take the, the kind of Muppet eyes uh, that look like they have an eye blink, which again is, is true to uh, mm-hmm. what, what Jim does and, and still have that single teardrop running down, down the cheek. It's amazing. So do you have like, choice puppeteers moments for yourself where it's like this is the epitome of of when when this gets voidy for you personally oh yeah so uh the first commercial that we shot uh ever it was the first time we were we were doing stuff and it was like every part of it was a nightmare because uh the the film crew that we were working with had never worked with puppets um and we were filming in an antique store where um, the owner didn't want to shut down or open the shop like up at at midnight for us to film, so we were filming around people uh, who were like shopping and we're trying to you know do do all these puppet things. Uh, but one one of the shots was because uh, he had a he had a um, a dynamite plunger that he was selling at the store. So he said, "Oh, how funny would it be if we had uh, a character, you know, one character." push the dynamite plunger down and another character elsewhere in the store blew up uh, because of it. And uh, we knew this, the special effect to make a, a small explosion like that, if you're not doing like a, a digital effect, a, a practical effect, is to take, um, imagine like what a beer bong would look like. You, you get the funnel and a, mm-hmm. a long tube. Uh, you fill it up with talcum powder, uh, baby powder, and then mm-hmm. you kind of make out of uh, just gaff tape, you make a star at the wide end of that funnel. And when you blow through the tube, all that powder kind of disperses and you get this really lovely cloud of smoke. Uh, so we knew that that would work. Um, I didn't realize when I was buying it and I was, I think I must've been 20 years old when we were doing it. So I just, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it. And so I went to the hardware store and at most got a foot of tubing, which was entirely too short for it. 
And um, we were, it was the first setup of the day because we knew that we like, we're going to have to clean it up and then move on. Um, And so I'm on the floor with this really short tube filled with baby powder. And uh, the director called action and then immediately said, oh, wait, no, no, we, we got it. Something's not right. And in that moment, I went from about to blow through a, a tube to immediately sucking it back in. And so my whole <laughs> mouth was filled with baby powder. I like had to go wretch in the bathroom. Um, but then we had like a 14 hour day of shooting ahead of us. And my mouth was so dry just that whole oh, time. Um, and there are plenty of others, but um, that that one really uh, kind of has stuck stuck it uh with me and i i I think partly because it was like i said it was our first commercial that we had ever done but um (laughs) it was (laughs) it was a nightmare very much everyone falls the first time kind of moment without a doubt yeah we also didn't have monitors on that shoot Mm -hmm. again because we we were working with a firm uh that was doing all the technical stuff so they were providing the cameras and everything and i told them that like we we need uh, television monitors to be able to see because when when puppeteers work, we're typically uh, have the puppets ab- above our heads, um, and we we look at the uh, the screen the same thing that an audience would see at home, so we know that the can- the puppet is looking you know directly in the camera or properly at the eyesight of the puppeteers because when you're down on the ground you can't fig- you know you can't quite tell I mean if if it was a really mm-hmm. wide shot maybe there's some forgiveness but um, so we were doing that whole thing though without without any kind of sight the fact that th- we got through it at all was a uh, um, mm-hmm. I-, I still don't know how it happened. Well, I'm, I'm glad it's gotten better. Yeah. at least like <laughs> me um, too. I don't think we'd be doing it still if it hadn't gotten a, a little be better. On talcum a little, face. Oh my god! Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, and speaking of getting better, right? Um, I've seen some of the work that you've done that I think folks would be really interested in, and one of the ones in particular would be uh, your piece of with um, uh, illness and mm. puppetry. Do you want to maybe tell folks a little bit about sort of? that piece, how it came to be, because I think it's it's really up, up their alley, as it yeah, were. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, uh, all growing up for a long time, uh, and I still deal with some some health issues, but um, my, my late elementary and then all through high school and college, uh, I dealt with a lot of sinus issues, and um, I have what's called mitochondrial disease. Um, so everybody, the one thing that they remember from uh, biology class is that the the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And uh, when people have mitochondrial disease, uh, their their mito uh, make uh, instead of going through the process of ATP, which gives good energy for all the cells in the body, uh, our our mitochondria make ammonia and lactic acid, uh, the the main stars of Lysol. Sounds um, less good. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and so it, it creates significant energy deficits and it it's a progressive type thing where, you know, some people have it uh, in their sinuses or their, their GI tracts like me. Um, other people have it in other body systems and it affects them in completely different ways. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to, you know, other types of illnesses where, you know, every, every, person who has it has a different story. Um, 
And it's also a silent disease, which makes it really hard as a student, uh, especially going through high school, which is going to suck for anybody. Uh, but, um, you know, to, to be missing a lot of school and other things like that, uh, and then to, but to look fine and normal is, is really mm-hmm. a challenge. And, and so along the way, I had kind of mentally kept track of, of, of the experiences, uh, and you know, had a great family support, had terrific doctors, uh, and as I was kind of coming out of that through the end of college and really starting to hone uh, my puppetry skills, uh, thanks to the the National Puppetry Conference uh, at the O'Neill, um, and discovering different kinds of puppetry beyond the Muppet style, which I really had grown up with. Um, this was an opportunity for me to. Uh, hopefully tell my story as a patient uh, and use some sort of, I, I hate to call it avant-garde, um, but I think mm. for a lot of, it's it's not avant-garde in the puppetry community, but I think P- for- Puppet-garde. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but for, I think, you know, a lot of people who had, were seeing it for the first time, um, they were like, oh, that's really like, that's different kind of stuff than- you know, mm-hmm. people maybe think of puppetry, uh, but was it was really me showing my experiences, um, and at the end of the day, it was all told through the perspective of my pediatrician, which I was happy to be able to do as sort of a tribute to him who, uh, you know, for for twenty two years worked so hard uh, to keep me healthy, uh, but also to kind of you know keep me sane and keep my family sane through it all. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, an interesting, this is where it gets real voidy, uh, um, yeah. in the, in the development process for that show, uh, which is called Sanity Intact, I should say. And if people want to see it, it's on my, uh, website, camgarity.com. Um, but when we were developing, what, when I was developing that, um, originally I wanted the project to be something where I could, uh, go into hospitals and perform for kids because my thinking was you know w- what did I need growing up you know um, I, mm-hmm. I wish I had someone to you know share some of my stories and and talk to me at my level was what kind of what I thought so I was creating these stories about um, to, you know trying to create like a, a, f- a set of folk tales or fables for the hospital world. Um, and in this week that I was at the O'Neill as an emerging artist, where you kind of focus just on your your personal thing for a week and you have the support of all these mentors and stuff, uh, was kind of where it developed and changed into a much more autobiographical story. But um, one of the inciting incidents for that was... Uh, and this this really goes to show when you work in a visual metaphor, uh, which is really all that puppetry is, um, mm. you 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 start to realize that what might make sense for you and what you might be seeing out of, especially when it's nonverbal um, uh, puppetry, um, you 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 quickly realize that other people are bringing their own experiences into it and maybe projecting mm-hmm. on that more than if they see, you know, My Fair Lady or Hamilton or, or any show where, you know, it kind of, you know, the the lyrics and the music are driving the metaphor. Uh, and so I had done this piece, uh, again, in, in the development where um, a, a 
my teddy bear was uh, sleeping in in the hotel. Uh, gosh, I always call it the hotel room, which really speaks <laughs> to how warped my life was. But the hospital room, and he mm-hmm. was hearing the the um, the heart monitor uh, going as kind of a metronome in itself, and. Uh, allowing the teddy bear's imagination to uh, uh, go off into the ocean and flying through the air. And we were using like different tools and things from that you would find in a hospital room, uh, like rubber gloves and stethoscopes and things like that to kind of bring these different environments to life. And Mm -hmm. when we finished that scene, uh, he kind of falls back into bed with, uh, with the child and, um, Again, because we were just workshopping it, and I was showing it to some of the artistic staff there, uh, we just turned off the the heartbeat monitor sound that was playing from my iPad, and immediately everyone was like, "Did the bear just die?" Um, mm. And they they saw the whole sketch as or or, or you know little vignette as uh, what the bear was experiencing if he was going through surgery himself. Um, and it, they it quickly realized like that people, you know, because everyone's mm-hmm. been in a hospital for some kind of reason, and that's a really weighty thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, when you're working in with these symbols that all have such loaded meaning for any individual person, we realize I, I quickly realized like, oh, I need to tell my story and I'll be as specific as I can in explaining what these things mean for me. And hopefully that people will be able to see themselves in that versus Mm -hmm. kind of imposing their, their history and what they know about those things in a piece where it was maybe more vague. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you meant, you mentioned that you see it as as a visual medium and like a lot of what you're thinking, what you're describing and, um, my experience with this is that, um, you know, it's like in the book Understanding Comics, where he talks about sort of the relationship between individuals and entities with differing degrees of like personhood or differing degrees of individuation or how how detailed their, you know, facial um, uh uh, shapes are what they you know how much how much you know do they have eyes do they have a mouth like these very basic things can have a huge impact on the level of identification that people can engage in with that entity it seems like and that muppets provide or puppets provide a very universal kind of um, identifier absolutely and actually uh one of the things that i was most proud of uh when we were doing sanity intact was uh there's this one so i kind of had three 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 different versions of reality um and an experience uh that sort of played throughout the show um and it was sort of a way to represent different pieces of self uh so Mm -hmm. i had this sort of tabletop puppetry which imagine just like a little uh uh table that you would have like at a in a cabaret space uh, that we did uh, performances with uh, with that teddy bear that I was just describing before and showing him sorting uh, pills and the process of um, starting, you know, having to deal with one pill a day. And throughout the, the show, he was dealing with hundreds of pills a day uh, mm. and, and uh, using different moments of uh, TV show theme songs to kind of show. Uh, I think we started mm. with Happy Days mm. and then like the first 
medicine uh, pill case gets delivered. And then eventually he's playing the piano basically with Archie and Edith um, as he's sword and pills because he's just become so competent in it. Um, and then, like yeah, I said, such a great show. Yeah, and then uh, we had the scenes with uh, with like the the pediatrician. But we also, ha- I I had this moment where uh, it, you were seeing a, a version of self that was being put under on the hospital table, and we actually used a a blank Muppet kind of style puppet. Um, so like usually, if uh, if there's a one off character on Sesame or the or the Muppets, they have basically like a glorified kind of Mr. Potato Head uh, thing where you, they could pin on eyes, they could pin on noses, uh, and so I used one of those blank puppets but without anything on it uh and that was kind of my moment to say okay uh, whoever you know who's been through this imagine them in this situation and so, again removing all those identifiers like you were just saying um mm-hmm. to kind of create the widest opportunity for people to say oh okay i you know i i see my grandfather in this i see that my mom in this mm-hmm. or or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and, and like but funny enough, it reminds me of, I assume you've seen the, the Toy Story 4 trailer that's come out yeah. recently yeah. where they're, yeah, yeah. they've got the spork that's coming to life and it's like <laughs> really messing with the bounds of identification there at Pixar because that's that's how they like to fuck around. Totally. Um, yeah. And there was a there's a great old sketch that Henson used to mm-hmm. do in the 50s, like on the Ed Sullivan show, where they had mm-hmm. one of those blank puppets that started with like just two basic eyes and a nose and they were talking to a human uh, performer who kept changing all those features, and you would see in real time uh, the the character voice and the mannerisms and all these different things change. Uh, and it's a great mm. kind of thing to point wow. to for people to say, like, "Oh, look how look how these little you know adding a tuft of hair or changing mm-hmm. a nose from an oval to a button you know can totally change things." So brilliantly deconstructive. Totally. And super meta. Um, And to think that that was like some of the first things that people were seeing from the Muppets was really wild too. Yeah. So what do you, um, is there stuff that you're working on these days, particular projects that you're, uh, besides the podcast that you're plugging away on? The podcast is definitely the the biggest thing that we're doing right now, uh, with my with my day job as a, a graphic designer, that keeps me pretty busy. And um, I do do our um, so I'm on our our local comedy sports team, which has been a blast. Mm-hmm. And I uh, mm-hmm. recently kind of forced my you way. Explain on. what that is for folks who don't know oh, what comedy yes. sports is. So um, it's a it's competitive improv. Uh, not really, but that's how we kind of present the <laughs> to show. To the death. Yes. Uh, no, but if anyone's ever seen uh, like whose line is it anyway? Uh, mm-hmm. imagine kind of that but instead of having uh, four individuals who are competing for points it's a red team and a blue team and we kind of take mm-hmm. turns uh, doing different skits and uh, you know sketches and such uh, and at the end um, you know you're really happy if you won and you don't care at all if you've lost um, and it's just it's such a fun time uh, for me just to play and it's it's mostly new people who I've never met before Um and now we're all thick as thieves. But back in August when I started, it was it was totally fresh. But um, I, I sort of forced myself onto their uh, flesh versus felt team, which is uh, w- where where the blue team is taken over by a bunch of of puppet characters, um, and that's been really fun to. So your whole team is puppets? Our whole team is puppets. And um, doesn't that give you like a substantial competitive advantage by being puppets? 
Uh, a little bit. What I really... (laughs) You admit it. Well, you know what? Uh, Because... It, it's you know there are certainly people who love love the puppet stuff um, and are just excited to see that uh, mm-hmm. be there. Um, mm-hmm. There's a funny level of um, it's it's fake contempt, but it's definitely contempt from the 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 person who sort of refs the matches as well as the other team. Of like, there's a lot of sort of talking down against like these second class citizen type things. Um, but what's funny about that and um, uh, so. I have a, a character who you've seen before. His name is Scrap. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. He's this little green monster who has four eyes. It looks like a Muppet went to Chernobyl, basically. And um, I've I've worked with him for ten years or more. So his his personality is set in stone uh, for for mm-hmm. me. And I brought that to the first uh, rehearsal for Flesh versus Felt, and they were like, "Oh, is he gonna?" like change his voice or anything like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do need to do that for improv, don't I? Uh, And ended up going to Adam's house and saying, can I just like grab a monster who's like, has no identifiable personality or anything to be my blank slate uh, because I couldn't improvise as Scrap because uh, Scrap is a, a fourth grader, a 10-year-old who's focused on library and books and has no interest in in doing <laughs> improv comedy. Um, and I, I remember telling that to my other teammates. They were like, oh, why'd you get a new new character? And I said, I, I can't improvise with, with that other, uh, you know, with that other guy. And they were like, that's crazy. And I was like, it makes sense to me. And then I, a week later, I called up a, a close friend of mine to say like, am I like, people think I'm crazy. Does this, does this sound right to a puppeteer? And she was like, Oh yeah, I have a puppet who only can speak Japanese. Uh, <laughs> Cause she, she created, she created this, this character when she was uh, doing a study abroad thing in Japan. And um, it, it only ever interacted with people in Japanese. And she said she's mm-hmm. tried to do translations and stuff when she's gone to things like Dragon Con or other things like that. And uh, she said, "There's no, there's no way. Like it could only be that for her," mm-hmm. which is really funny to me. And it made me feel much less crazy about saying that uh, Scrap had to stick to his day job as a student. <laughs> how how close? I mean, like, how much before this borders into like multiple personalities, like? Do you feel like there's a part of yourself that's carved off that will forever be this this particular character? Uh I don't think so cuz I it's <laughs> it's not anything that um that I have like it's not anything that like I I could hear him talking to me when I don't have him on. But what is pretty wild is the second that I get that um that tool on my hand mm-hmm. uh, cuz that's really what I you know I, I see him as an instrument. Um as soon as I have it on, my my hand starts moving with him, and mm-hmm. uh, you definitely start channeling that character that you've created for him. And and for me, like again, that character is very close and near dear to my heart. Um, but mm-hmm. even if I had on again, like that that sort of blank monster or one of our uh, you know penguins or humanoids or whatever, you definitely start to. Um, and I, I don't know if it's muscle memory or, or what, but you definitely start to, uh, channel some of yourself into that. Um, mm-hmm. and I imagine, uh, you know, I, I don't know, um, if that happens particularly with like musicians and stuff, but I feel like I've met enough guitarists who once they have 
the in, the guitar strap on them, they start noodling a little bit, right? Or you know, they sit down mm-hmm. at a piano and they can't not. Um, I think of someone like John Baptiste on the Colbert Show, uh, who you know when he's talking or when when something funny happens, he starts you know just underscoring things in a way that makes sense to him and his sense of of humor mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And I I kind of feel like that's what's going on. Uh, when I put any one of these these characters on, that makes sense. Um, something you mentioned in there reminds me that, like, I wanted to mention, I want to talk about a little bit uh, something I loved uh, working with you and the work that you did uh, with the campers back at Bucks Rock was that, like, you seem very invested in um, the idea that like anything can be a puppet kind of thing, or that like you can you can get a personality out of almost any kind of entity. So like, for example, I loved your, your lemon and lime characters yeah. um, who were, you know, literally just lemons and limes cut in half and like, but it worked and it was, they were incredibly, and like the kids loved playing those characters. And I'm like, I'm curious if you have any thoughts or suggestions for folks who like love puppetry and want to like start with something that is that super easy level of things. For sure. Well, and uh, yeah, the uh, I was just thinking about lemon and lime the other day. I was describing them to someone so uh, who was reading the uh, uh, the Harry Potter script that I wrote for for Bucks Rock, and which like, was amazing. <laughs> it was so much fun. Oh my um, god, it was incredible. Uh, yeah, I I really want to pull out at least that scene with Snape where we kind of reveal his whole backstory mm-hmm. um, as like something for a puppet slam or whatever. But I, I was describing, because someone someone was like, what what do the lemon and lime look like? Like, are they hand puppets? And I was like, no, imagine like a rod puppet that the mouth moves kind of like a Canadian from South Park. <laughs> Just it is. right down the center, uh, two googly eyes and that's it. But um, no, the, the, uh, the definition of uh, puppetry that I used, especially at Bucks Rock, uh, was uh, moving an object uh, to to move an inanimate object. Wow, I'm totally botching this. Uh, yeah. th- the puppetry is the art of moving objects in a manner not inherent to their own mechanism. Uh, so that mm. that goes for that's that's where like the anything could be a puppet type thing, because mm-hmm. as long mm-hmm. as you're manipulating something whether it's in your hands or with your feet or, or anything like that, there is a way that you can uh, create a, a character out of that. And the things that I love to be able to point to are like the, especially the early uh, Pixar shorts where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, objects that don't even have really any kind of animation to them beyond the fact that it's, uh, you know, a, a unicycle that's moving around. Um, but in a way that, mimics maybe you know a a dog or a baby or you know anything like that um there are ways humans are highly adaptable in being able to impose character into what they're seeing um so yeah i mean i i always love to to tell people this and like just take a pen out of my pocket and start moving it around with with intention um Mm -hmm. still giving it focus and you give it a sense of where is it looking what how does it move is it is it uh you know is it cocky is it seductive and there are ways that um you know, people are going to see that. Now the trick is, of course, uh like we were saying before with um with the teddy bear and the the heart monitor, is that sometimes people see one thing and other people see another. 
Um, mm-hmm. But that's where the specificity comes in and you start refining things. And, um, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. a lot of trial and error, of course, like like all good things. But, um, yeah, it's... it's um, I, I love being able to work with kids at that really introductory level uh, because they just eat it up uh, too. And I, I I don't mean that in a, any kind of cynical mm-hmm. way, but sometimes no. you, you work, like I, I've done a lot of work with, with college students and I say, okay, so today we're just going to work with, you know, paper or we're just going to work with, uh, you know, uh, you know, with a chair or we're going to, you know, make puppets out of pencils. And they're like, well, no, when are we going to play with that box of, you know, penguins and chickens and, and all that kind of stuff? I'm like, okay, mm. we'll, we'll get there, but these are the, you know, you got to play the scales before you could, you know, start playing, you know, musical songs. Um, so that's kind of, like I said, I, I love working with, with the younger kids because they're so ready to just play an experiment like that. Yeah, I remember, I mean, this brings me to my my favorite experience all time working with you and also probably my favorite show working at Bucks Rock in the, the almost 10 years, the 10 years or more that I worked there, um, which was Six Characters in Search of an Author. Mm. Um, for folks who are not familiar, it's a sort of cool, creepy, meta, macabre story about a, a group of performers who are doing a show that gets interrupted by another group of weird performers who claim that they are just characters from this thing and they want their story told and it gets very creepy and at at one point there's a character who is called madame pace and she's this evil creepy seamstress um madam who prostitutes out uh young women and in the original version it calls for like a weird sort of mirror effect where you might see her projected they suggest projection or something but because we had you sort of crushing it over in the puppetry department. Um, I came and asked you for this puppet and you made this beautiful found object puppet. Do you want to like describe uh, Madame Pace for folks? Yeah, I'd love to. And I'm trying, I could, I could so remember th- creating, especially the head and some mm-hmm. of that body. And it was, it felt like making a scarecrow a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, Cause it was, it was mostly made with PVC pipe um, and it was some interlocking pieces, which allowed us to, I think she was able to get up to, what was it? Like seven feet or more. Yeah. Um, like several feet taller than the, the tiny little the children tiny that you had found who were, who were performing it. And, uh, cause you know, there, there weren't many resources that we were able to get at Bucks Rock. Like there was, there was a Joann's mm-hmm. and there was a, uh, I think a Walmart maybe that I went mm-hmm. to and that was about, or maybe there was a Home Depot, I guess. But, um, I just remember going to the hardware store, like, what can I get here that I'll be able to bring back and do anything with? Um, and, it, and her base was the kind of rolly that you would put a garbage can on in a cafeteria. Uh, mm-hmm. we found a flange to get that, that post set up. And then it was a lot of like, um, different fabrics and stuff to create the sense of body. And ultimately I want to say it was a, a a paint roller was the thing that operated the head. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, Oh, and we was, was there a, 
yeah, there was a an umbrella too that yeah. we cut up to make some really cool wings. I mean, that thing took up so much space. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just, I I love that so much. And I remember, I don't think I had a chance to see like any kind of rehearsals particular, or maybe I came in once, but I'll never forget seeing it in person with the lights and uh, just everything. And it was so spooky. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was definitely a highlight for me too. And I, I, I think that goes to show, you know, what, what any kind of puppeteer could do. Um, but especially those kids of just allowing them to take up the kind of space that they, that they need and to become, go from being this small little set of sticks to something large and imposing and really frightening. Yeah. And totally like, like a, a moment, like a show stealing kind of moment where in, in the show where there was lots of creepy stuff, like the sounds of it. Um, I think in the original script, there was stuff about like um, a bunch of pile of coats and what it ended up feeling like was sort of like an evil coat rack that had come to life almost. Mm-hmm. And the wings that you had where it was like, it was an, it was a black umbrella, but you'd like shredded it some. Yeah. So it was like these shredded black wings and it interacted with some of the audience at one point. It was, it was so beautiful. And yeah. we like, yeah, I just, I, I loved that moment. And I love that it was, it had a totally different feel because it was this real object. It wasn't a projected thing. You know, like projection can be amazing. Sometimes you do some really cool work with your shadow puppetry stuff. That's a whole different story. But I just think it's so interesting how the different kinds of puppetry can have their own feel to them. Absolutely. Well, and that's the other thing that I really love about it. And I, I think you're, we're starting to see with, um, as they've done like these new Star Wars films and things like that, having a tactile object for actors to be able to interact mm-hmm, with is mm-hmm. so important. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe the audience, you know, eventually doesn't know the difference, but there's something so innate about that, that connection that happens. I think as, as we're talking about it, I'm remembering that that the Madame Pace puppet, I want to say at one point kind of her fingers stuck out and like kind of graced the cheek of a, a young yep. kid and yep. just making that, that human contact between that, the creature and a human was just so vile and visceral. Um, and that's the same kind of thing that could then happen on an opposite side of the spectrum when mm-hmm. you're, you know, meeting kids in hospitals or on Sesame street or anything. It's, mm-hmm. it's that, that truly human connection with something that, you know, once it, <laughs> once it goes on its own coat rack, it becomes inanimate again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's just so much that you can do with them. They're so versatile. Um, I'm curious, um, before we run out of time, do you have any thoughts about like where you see puppetry going? Like, do you feel like innovations that you're excited about or like things that you've seen recently that are like, have, have you excited about something newish? Yeah. To point out. Um, well, I, I will say I'm totally jazzed by the idea of what um, what something like Star Wars has done recently in mm-hmm. marrying uh, the puppetry with the CGI. Because uh, I, I feel like for so much growing up, I remember hearing like CGI is going to make all this stuff obsolete. Um, and to mm-hmm. now and, and realizing that like something like and obviously the the thing that everyone points to is like a Jar Jar Binks, right? Of just being this totally awful, uncanny valley type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But for me to watch something like um, like Star Wars, or even I just found out that um, the Happy Time Murders that came out last summer 
which had its own set of problems. But um, right. a lot of that puppetry was digital uh, to make characters like run up the mm-hmm. street at, you know, at 10 miles an hour or different things like that uh, was done digitally. Uh, and you shoot some practical, you do some of it in the computer, and it just marries so well that you don't know which one is happening. And that's okay. Um, but you also know uh, that, you know, Melissa McCarthy had someone, a fellow actor, to to play against. Um, and she wasn't, you know, having to talk to a, a tennis ball on a stick uh, for mm-hmm. hours and hours a day. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my favorite movie that I've talked about before, one of my favorite movies is The Thing, John Carpenter's. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. you don't think of it as a puppetry movie, but, like, there had to be a puppet working those giant creepy monstrous puppet things and that's like part of and like those effects have never been superseded in my opinion like yeah cgi has not overcome practical effects in a lot of ways and so i agree totally that it's it's wonderful that this stuff is getting um is you know being like we've admitted that like it is better and we want to include some of that stuff in there again for sure, yeah, and do and you, again, there because there are things that the CG can do um, mm-hmm. better than than the puppetry. So why not allow both both parts of that artistry to play to its own strengths? And again, you you end up getting um, something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, do you know? By the way, I mean, maybe you don't know anything about this, but like um, Detective Pikachu, that movie that's coming out soon, does that involve any practical effects, or is that entirely CGI? You know, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah. I know for sure uh, if you saw the the uh, Jungle Book that Disney mm-hmm. did as one of the first sort of landmark uh, live CGI movies, uh, uh, almost every character had a puppeteer on the set for that, uh, for the kid playing Mowgli to interact with. Um, mm, interesting. Yeah, I I don't I I haven't looked too much into that detective Pikachu thing, um, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. Um, uh huh. Yeah, Does Andy Circus sure. qualify as a puppet? I'm sorry, say that again. This, does Andy Circus qualify as a puppet at this point? Is he just <laughs> is he is he a puppeteer you know, or a puppet or is it both? Ah, you know, and that's that's totally where that like weird fine line <laughs> thing starts to happen. I I think. Uh, ultimately probably not but i mean the the things that he is able to do in i i i think for him he just allows his his body and to be his tool um mm-hmm. yeah i i don't know that's a great question that you're you're going to have me thinking about that a little bit uh, i want to i want to say no just because he's not He's he's he is just so in tune with just his body, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I think I'm going to say no, but I I would be really interested to see what he could do if he was channeling that into a a performance. It's fun. Uh, you're you're making me think of um, one of the the puppetry instructors over at uh, the University of Connecticut that has a an MFA program in puppetry mm-hmm. often mm-hmm. will say that um, he'd rather. Uh, a puppeteer come from uh, the world of um, the world of uh, uh, performing an instrument. He'd rather have a musician than someone who was formerly a dancer, because they're more in tune with channeling a performance into an object rather mm-hmm. than an actor or a dancer who 
um, you know, is is so used to using all of their tool uh, to 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 inspire an audience. Yeah, that makes sense. Though it's funny that I was just I was just thinking like, where does puppetry end and dance begin? Like the line oh, between yeah, puppetry and sure. dance is such a fascinating question. But like, uh, we're, we're, we're unfortunately we're running short on time, and no, I could talk okay. to you forever. But like, um, we should spend, save a little bit of time because I think you've got a. Um, uh, making the void livable for us puppetry edition so. yeah i think um and i'm sorry to go back to to sesame street mm-hmm. again but um it all the, goes back to sesame street <laughs> it, it does but um they they just announced last week um that uh the character julia who is the the muppet who has autism um they just introduced her whole family uh, on the show mm. and uh it's just such a wonderful bit of representation not only for the autism community for everybody to start seeing themselves and and find their story in in this character but also below below the frame it's a lot of really close friends of mine who are uh a lot of whom are getting their first character um, on the show. They're sort of these mm-hmm. young gun puppeteers who are the next generation. And um, it's uh, the the woman, Kathleen Kim, who plays Julia's mom, is um, the first Asian-American uh, puppeteer on Sesame Street to have uh, her own character. And so mm-hmm. I just think, and, and there, I think, it's an even split between female puppeteers and male puppeteers, which... Unfortunately, does not happen that often uh, mm. with Sesame Street because it just came from the world of the 1950s and 60s, where it was it was a a guy's game. Um, but yeah. so to to watch like the behind the scenes stuff um, and see see both worlds um, of of representation again, both on screen and below it, it just warms my heart, and I'm I'm so excited for for those people. Okay, so this is a bit of a can of worms, but um, like, given that you mentioned this particular story, I have to at least mention, and I'm curious what your thoughts are comparing this to the the thing I sent you about a week or so ago when we were getting you scheduled about uh, the local community college or community theater that did a, yes. a show with a puppet that was supposed to be the autistic child. Um, yeah. And if you had, yeah. Yeah. What are your that, thoughts on that? Uh, you know, it's it's so hard to say since I you know personally didn't didn't see it but certainly it seems like that community um it, it was a lot of uh a, a lot of artists on stage and off who were not listening to feedback um from from that community and i think that's something where um when you know it's fine for people to not know the answers um mm-hmm. but when when there are people letting you know that what you're what you're doing is um, going to cause harm in some way. Uh, that's when you need to step up and and listen to them, um, because again, pe- and this goes back to what we were saying before. People have their own experiences that they're going to bring into a theater, and if you're going to violate them or not depict them in the proper um, proper manner, then we're not doing our jobs as artists because we we are there to tell stories and to shed light on things. And if we're um, just creating more darkness, then, you know, what, what the hell? <laughs> well, so well I, put. You know, I, I, again, I can't speak too much to it having not been a part of it, but it, it just seemed really unfortunate to me. Ugh. 
I miss hanging out with you so much. I we gotta, I do we gotta too. figure out some time we'll to hang to, out. This will um, have to be part one. Yes, for sure. Um, but in the meantime, why don't you tell folks where they can find you and hear more of your pearls of um, puppet wisdom? Sure. So uh, the podcast is Puppeteers Pod. Uh, so we're on uh, on iTunes, and you could find the video version of it on YouTube. Uh, you could go to puppeteers.com and uh, and find all the episodes there. There's nothing behind a paywall or anything. And then uh, my my personal website is camgarity.com, and you could find all the stuff I've been doing with puppetry and graphic design and storyboarding and all that kind of stuff. So I uh, would love to meet people there. Yeah, highly recommend. And thanks so much for coming on and oh, talking absolutely. about all this stuff. Thanks for having and, me. And yeah, we'll have to have you back for part two of Puppet Land. Would love it. Adam.